0: Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Braille Institute's Child Development Monthly Telephone Lecture. My name is Dr. Bill Takesta and I'm the Consulting Director of Low Vision Education at the Braille Institute, and each month we put on a different topic here that's related to children and child development. Tonight, we're going to be talking about something that's very, very important for people to know, and that is what is called neurological vision impairment. Now neurological vision impairment is really one of the most important types of visual conditions that we face each day as eye doctors. As the term suggests, neurological means that there is something different about the brain that is causing the vision impairment. Now when I first started practicing in the 1980s, the most common type of vision condition that we would see among children was typically children who were born with cataracts. But as the years have gone by, we now know that since 2000, over the past 10 years, when we really have monitored the patients that we have seen, the number one cause of vision impairment that we see among children today is neurological vision impairment. So the question that we ask about this is why? Why do we see that there are so many more children who have neurological vision impairment and the main answer to that is because children who are born today with complicated births or other types of injuries or even in utero drug exposure these children today are surviving whereas 20 years ago many of these children probably would not have survived I remember before one of the things that we would be very shocked is if we ever saw a child who was born at 28 weeks gestation we would just thought that this was not a miracle but today we're seeing children born as young as 22 23 weeks gestation and these very very fragile babies they're surviving and many of them are surviving and doing quite well so what's happening here is just the fact that many children who have suffered from these types of problems, these children are fortunately surviving due to the miracles and the advances in technology. So when we think about neurological vision impairment, we have to then really understand how does vision actually work? We often think that the eyes are just the way that a person's able to see. In other words, we often think that the eye is just like a camera, and the image focuses inside the eyeball, and we're able to somehow process it but vision is actually much much more complicated and the eyes are merely receivers of light when a baby is looking at something inside his or her room the picture of that mobile or the picture of the stuffed animal it comes into the eyes and it focuses onto a tissue in the eye called the retina now what the retina is the retina is a tissue that is just very very sensitive to light and when the retina is struck by the image of a television or a person's face or a toy the retina is going to then create an electrical signal and this electrical signal is then sent down a nerve and that nerve is then going to send it all the way to the very back of the brain and that back part of the brain is where the visual processing occurs now that back part of the brain is called the occipital lobe of the brain and this is something that's really really important to understand that this region in the back of the brain is where vision occurs now one of the things that we have to think about is well what happens is it just a very tiny area of the occipital lobe of the brain or is it the left side or the right side well in reality we know that vision is very very specific and it is the entire back of the brain where vision occurs. The very, very back of the brain is the occipital lobe of the brain. And if you were to place your hand on the back of your head, that entire region there is where vision is taking place. Now, if you feel in the back of your head, you'll feel a little bump right in the very center. And that is the region of the occipital lobe of the brain that processes detailed information this is where your child is able to see your face your child is able to see the colors of toys your child is able to see details of pictures and numbers and letters and this center region of the occipital of the brain is what we call the identification region now what sometimes happens is that we say that some children they do not receive enough oxygen and that central region of the brain is damaged as a result many many children with neurological vision impairment they actually have a blind spot right in the very very center so if they have a blind spot in the very very center there that means that when they look at your face straight on they might see a foggy blob or they don't see your eyes or your nose or your mouth and as a result these children can't really see you when they look straight ahead now the areas that are surrounding that bump on the back of your brain there that surrounding area of the occipital of the brain is what gives us our peripheral vision the peripheral vision is what allows us to see things off to the side it gives us our ability to see in the dark and it's also very very sensitive to motion so what we find is that there are many times that children who suffer from neurological vision impairment that sometimes they might have better peripheral vision than central vision. So in these cases, many of these babies, they won't look straight at you when they're making eye contact, but they will move their eyes slightly to the right or to the left or up or down. And when they look that way, they could use their side vision, and then they can actually see you much better. So this is something that's very important to know Because a lot of parents, they often think, my gosh, my child doesn't even see me, or my child isn't even paying attention to me, or my child doesn't love me. But in fact, just because a child doesn't look like he or she is looking at you, that does not mean that he or she actually is not. You might do a little experiment right now. If you could make a fist with your hand, and if you put it right on the bridge of your nose... When you put your fist right on the bridge of your nose, you'll notice that you really don't have very good central vision. If you're trying to look at your telephone right now or your computer screen, when you have a fist right over the bridge of your nose, you may not be able to see the numbers to dial, or you can't see the screen on your computer. Well, if you then suddenly turn your head to the right or to the left, you'll then suddenly realize that using your side vision, you could then see it and this is what many children with neurological vision will do. Now we then ask the question how do we really know that this is the case? How do we know that this is a part of the brain that is being used when one sees? Well there's different studies and there was actually a Nobel Prize winning study many years ago that actually was able to determine that when kittens were raised in different environments they found that this was a region of the brain that was different. The kittens that had better vision the cells in the back of the brain were bigger. The kittens that were blind the cells in the back of the brain were very very small. So that was the earliest way that as scientists we knew that this is a part of the brain that's responsible for vision. In more recent days there's other tests that are called PET scans and the PET scan, PET scan, is another type of scan where a particular type of chemical is going to be injected, and when a child or an adult is doing something, we can actually see the area of the brain that is being active. In reality, what this kind of test does is it can actually measure how the brain is using energy at that time. It's almost like finding what part of the brain is using the sugar and working in order to do that task. So with these PET scans we could tell that when we show a picture to somebody and the person looks at that picture we then see suddenly the very back of the brain the occipital lobe of the brain it grows and it glows we could see a very small area that is illuminated and it's glowing and then it gets bigger and bigger So this tells us that that entire region of the back of the brain is where one sees. So this is a very very important thing to understand that neurologically the brain is actually going to be performing different types of function. So when we think about neurological vision impairment we first have to then say how do we diagnose something like this? Well there's different types of tests that can be performed For example, there are CAT scans and MRIs. And these are ways that the doctors can look at the occipital lobe of the brain. By looking at it, we could see if the color is not correct. We could see if the brain doesn't have the folds it's supposed to have. So there's many things that we could actually physically see if that part of the brain is there or it is not. The second thing that we could also do is, as I mentioned, is the PET scan. And a third thing that we could also do is what's called an EEG. An EEG is a way that we can measure the actual function of the different parts of the brain. There are different types of brain waves. You might have heard of alpha wave, beta, theta. And these different brain waves tell us what type of function is occurring in these regions of the brain. In Playa del Rey, California, there's actually a organization it's called the Brain Enhancement Institute where they are really experts at looking at the function. And this is really important because if you have a child who was born without oxygen or you had a child who had a hemorrhage and the blood didn't supply oxygen to the brain or if you had a child who was in a car accident and it damaged the brain, a lot of times you can have a MRI or you might have another type of test and all that it tells you is if that part of the brain is there or not. But the EEG could tell you what type of function. The EEG could tell you this brain region is functioning but it takes it a little bit longer in order to see it. Or we could see another situation where that there's a clogged pathway, so to speak, where the signal is starting to go towards that part of the brain, and then it's getting stopped, or it's getting stuck. So those are the different types of medical tests that are usually performed to diagnose neurological vision impairment. But in reality, the way that most of us eye doctors diagnose neurological vision impairment Is really by listening to the case history we listen to what has happened we ask the question was this child full-term we know that if a child is born premature sometimes they have different types of brain hemorrhaging and when there's a brain hemorrhage it could damage certain parts of the occipital lobe of the brain we might say how can a brain hemorrhage cause damage to the occipital lobe of the brain Well, remember that the tissue of the body, including the brain, it needs oxygen in order to breathe. If there isn't any oxygen, we just cannot survive. Well, when a child has a hemorrhage in the brain, there's two things that might happen. If there's a brain hemorrhage, the blood doesn't get delivered to the occipital lobe of the brain. And the blood is what is carrying the oxygen. So we could think of it just like your sprinklers in your front lawn. If you suddenly sprung a leak, it might not be getting to that one region of your lawn, and the lawn would get dried. So when there's a hemorrhage, we know that the blood isn't delivering the oxygen. Another thing that we ask is, has this child suffered from any type of in utero drug exposure? We seem to think that there's a problem when a mother has been exposed to drugs or alcohol or we really see a lot when there has been exposure to crack cocaine it seems to have affected the development of some of these pathways when this is the case these children often have very very different ways that they process visual information so based on the history we could tell from the prenatal history And we also look very carefully at the birth history. When a child has swallowed merconium, or if a child was not breathing at birth, or shortly after birth, if the child had suffered from seizures, or if the child had hydrocephalus, any of these types of things can affect the way that the brain is receiving oxygen. So number one, What I really listen for is if the baby has suffered from a lack of oxygen, and that is called hypoxia or anoxia. Whether it's hypoxia or anoxia, this just means that the brain and the baby didn't get as much oxygen, and this is something that could definitely affect the way that the visual parts of the brain is processing when we then think about this whole situation about what happens if the brain cells have been damaged because they haven't received enough oxygen we have to remember that there's different connections between different nerves within the brain there's millions and millions of different types of connections of little nerves now when a child experiences something for the first time We know that the connection between two nerves in the brain, it actually makes a new connection. It's almost as though that you added a new connection from one nerve to the other. These are things that are called dendritic spines. So if you remember a little bit from biology, you might remember that from two nerves, you have two little hairs that look like the hairs from a tree root now at first you might have one little hair from one tree and you got another hair from another tree but if the child then is exposed to light this particular pathway it often creates what's called a dendritic spine if the child is then shown colors there might be more connections and this isn't only for vision And obviously, what I'm talking about is an oversimplification. But basically, each time that a child experiences something, you get these stronger and stronger connections between the nerves. Pretty soon, you have just these thousands and thousands of connections between the different nerves. And this is how a child is able to process something faster. If a child sees something, the child could then recognize it more quickly. If the child hears something, the child might recognize that it's its favorite song. Or if the child tastes something, the more frequently that the child tastes it, the child will then be able to discriminate it to say, yes, this is good, or yuck, this is not good. So neurologically, we know this is what's happening within those regions of the brain. So if a child has suffered from brain injury to the occipital lobe of the brain, it's very important that we try to make these connections occur another thing that's also very important to understand about the brain is something that is called plasticity we know that there's situations in which if a young child has suffered from damage to one part of the brain that another part of the brain can take over that function now this is something that I experienced two times personally with children that I had And these patients of mine, they were in their teen years. They were about 13 years of age. The other was about 15. And they both had really severe seizure disorders. Now, these seizures were being caused by the left side of the brain. And they tried everything they could. They tried these special diets. They tried the medications. They tried acupuncture. They tried everything. But these kids were having 30 to 40 grand mal seizures a day. Well, their neurologist basically recommended that they remove the part of the brain that's causing the seizure, and they did what's called a hemispherectomy, where they removed the left side of the brain. Now, the left side of the brain is very important for controlling language. It does many more things, but it's very, very important for language and the ability to speak. Well, I saw this child come in. When I saw this child, I just was, you know, just sort of taken aback because I didn't know what to say because I'd been seeing this child for years, and I thought that this child wasn't going to be able to speak. I noticed that he was limping on the right side of the body, was weak, and I just said, my goodness. So I offered him to come into the exam chair, and he just sort of groaned. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry so sorry that you're not able to speak and then he just laughed at me and he said gotcha I got you Dr. Bill now that was something that was just so amazing because I could not believe it I could not believe it that he had the hemispherectomy and that particular part of the brain that was involved with his speech was removed and so this is a way that again shows that different parts of the brain can take over different types of functions. Nowadays there's a lot of research that's going on especially at Emory University where they're studying a lot of people who suffer from brain injury and they're finding the same type of thing that even in older adults who have suffered from strokes where they lost oxygen to parts of the brain that these types of damages could cause a loss of peripheral vision and they're finding that some of these patients who are receiving the therapy that they're regaining some of that peripheral vision one of the types of things that they're also doing which is very exciting is something that is called transcranial magnetic stimulation and so trans means across cranium means across the bones of the skull magnetic stimulation and this is where they're using these magnetic devices and they're stimulating the damaged part of the brain and these adults are regaining some of their peripheral vision. Now at this point in time the improvement in peripheral vision is temporary. It's not a long-standing type so that these people have to continue to have that stimulation. But it's again showing that these connections between the different nerves are definitely taking a very positive effect so overall we know again so far that vision occurs in the very back of the brain we know that if the back of the brain it doesn't get oxygen because of a hemorrhage or any other region they can affect the vision now the next thing that we then have to then talk about is well what happens if one does have neurological vision impairment does this mean that there's something that can be done does this mean that Nothing can be done. What's the real truth behind this? Well, what we have done is we have studied at the Center for the Parfacy Sighted, the patients that we've seen for almost 20 years. And what we have found is that a great majority of patients with neurological vision impairment, their vision will improve. What we have done, just like other doctors throughout the world, we have actually categorized, what type of neurological vision impairment the first type of neurological vision impairment is what is called cortical blindness cortical blindness basically means that the child at that time that you examine the child is totally blind the child cannot see any type of light any color any high contrast or nothing And these are children that typically have such severe damage to the occipital lobe of the brain. This might be where they have been in such a traumatic accident that the entire back of the brain has been injured. Or that there was a gunshot wound to the back of the head. Or there might have been a tumor. Now in these situations with cortical blindness, this accounts for about 7%. 7% of the children... That we have seen who have neurological vision impairment, about 7% of them have cortical blindness. With the children who have cortical blindness, the way that we typically diagnose this is again with the MRI. With the MRI, we could see the severe damage to the occipital lobe of the brain. Now, for these children, what we have found is that the child with cortical blindness, their vision usually does not improve at all. We have implemented vision stimulation and all sorts of other types of activities, and we find that for those children, we find that their vision usually does not improve. The second category of neurological vision impairment is what is called delayed visual maturation. And this accounts for about 2 to 3% of the children that we have seen at our center. Now, these are the kids that when you look at their brain you don't physically see that there's something wrong but when you look at the child the child doesn't see and with time you provide visual stimulation and we find that these children their vision develops quite rapidly generally by the time that these children are 36 months that their vision is normal or very near normal So these are the kids who really, really need the vision stimulation right away because the vision stimulation is making those connections between the different neurons within the occipital lobe of the brain. So delayed visual maturation is something that's very important. If your doctor has diagnosed your child with delayed visual maturation, these are the kids who really, really will benefit from an intensive vision stimulation program. Now, the great majority of children with neurological vision impairment have what is called cortical vision impairment. And it's abbreviated CVI. And with cortical vision impairment, we find that about one-third of these children, their vision will get significantly better. Now, with these children, what we find is that they respond very, very well to specific types of patterns. We find that these children usually do not have very strong central vision it's similar to that example that I showed you when you place your fist right in the middle they might have a foggy area of vision right in the center just as though somebody put some Vaseline right on the center of your glasses but their peripheral vision is often very good their vision is sometimes described to be similar to looking through Swiss cheese where you have spotted areas of clear vision and other areas of frosted vision. They like to look at black and white or red and white. They like to look at things that are moving and they like to look at things that are within their peripheral vision. So you notice that these are all things that are very different. Most parents they put their face right in front of the baby and they're right in the center. So the child won't really see it but if they start to move their head from side to side the motion will arouse them and these kids will then start to see it many times if you're going to be moving or putting your face within your side vision of the child they'll see it better other times we tell people to use more contrast we tell mothers go ahead and use a bright red lipstick we tell the fathers go ahead and put on the Clark Kent Superman glasses put on the Groucho Marx different types of eyebrows All these things with that contrast are things that could be very, very helpful. So overall, what we see is that the great majority of children who do have neurological vision impairment, they do have the ability to develop more vision. Now, what age period do we find is the best time to work with children? We find that between the age of birth to five is really the best time that we see the best results of improving a child's vision now in many cases when a child has a neurological problem it not only affects the vision part of the brain but it might affect the hearing parts of the brain it might affect the motor parts of the brain that controls the eyes movement skills it controls the hands to move the legs to move so it could affect many many different areas and with this in mind we have to realize that many times we have to work on many things together so your child might be doing some vision activities along with some physical activities or vision therapy along with occupational therapy so because the brain is working on many things all at once these therapies are something that's very very easy to do now people ask what is this vision stimulation or the vision therapy does this mean that we're gonna work for 20 minutes a day no it does not basically anything that you're doing with your child throughout the day is going to stimulate vision by understanding these principles that we're talking about you could modify the way you do things and it's going to stimulate your child's vision it will stimulate your child's hearing and it will stimulate your child's cognitive skills as well as the motor skills So, for example, let's say that you're just waking up your baby in the morning. Well, the first thing that you want to do is you want to make certain that you have enough light in the room to help your child to see. Most children with neurological vision impairment, they respond better to better lighting. If you're then going to go towards the crib, one of the first things that you might then do is you might slowly talk to your child so your child doesn't startle. Many parents just come and grab their baby and then they're so startled that these children start to avoid people. Then you might go ahead and you might move your head from side to side as you're gently calling out your child's name. The movement of your head will stimulate the child's arousal of motion and the child will then try to follow and track by moving the head. You might then go ahead and start to dress your child. You might get a t-shirt or a different blanket or something that has polka dots or black and white stripes or red and white stripes and before you dress your child go ahead and wave it a few times wave it to the right wave it to the left so your child sees it in this way as you're dressing your child is getting vision stimulation now you're gonna take your baby out of the crib and you're gonna then go ahead and wash her face in the bathroom well you might simply Position her in front of the mirror so that she could see herself, and then you want to slowly move her back and forth so that she starts to track. Track her reflection in the mirror. Next, if you're going to get some breakfast, you might use high contrast tape and patterns and put it on the bottle, and as you're going to feed her this milk, you might move the bottle so she's tracking it and follow it so no matter what it is that you're doing today throughout the day you could use these particular types of activities and these different suggestions so that your child is getting visual stimulation throughout the day now many people think that vision stimulation is something that a teacher or early intervention specialist will do for you what these folks are doing is they're basically going to teach you how to do these activities because these people are only with you for maybe a half hour a week or one hour per week and we realize that you're going to be with your child almost all waking hours so with this you want your early intervention teacher or vision teacher or your eye doctor to tell you specific things to do and each week or every two weeks there will be new activities sometimes it might include a light box with high contrast patterns Other times, it might be something as simple as making a stained glass window on the patio window so that if you're doing the dishes, you could put the baby in a little car seat and face the patio window with a stained glass cellophane. That's going to be very, very stimulating. So when you're thinking about all these different types of activities, the main thing to think about for young children, if they're under two years of age, we think about move motion. In other words, we want objects and toys that are going to be moving. We want to position the toy typically at about 16 inches away. We want to encourage the child to touch what he is looking at. And we also want to use different colors, black and white and red and white. So we often sort of tease the child by presenting it in one angle and then move it to the other. Now we have to then ask the question, are there certain things that we are finding that makes vision stimulation more effective? And the answer to that is yes. We find that it's very helpful to have a low vision evaluation by a doctor who can tell you specifically where is the best place to put the visual stimuli. You see, some children who have neurological vision impairment might have a blind spot and if you position your child such that everything is in the blind spot, the child won't see it and the brain won't get stimulated. So you want to have a doctor tell you where to position it, what distance, what types of glasses could stimulate the way that the images focus on the retina and thus stimulate the brain more, what's going to be the best type of lighting, and from all of this, you're going to have a much better chance of success during this type of visual stimulation. After having a doctor tell you that, you also want to make certain that your home has been modified to a way to stimulate vision. If a child is just lying in the crib and the ceiling is white and the walls are white and everything is white, there is no pattern stimulation. We know that the patterns are what's going to make those connections in the brain. We've seen other families where they have such a dimly lit home that it's very difficult to see and under a very dim home a child won't be able to see. This isn't going to stimulate those regions of the brain. We see that there's children who have other types of conditions. We see children all the time where they're born with cataracts or they're born with a crossed eye and when there's a cataract or a crossed eye the brain does not get stimulated normally and so these children they might be fit with glasses or other types of treatments but the home doesn't have enough stimulation and the vision does not develop in the nineteen eighties I did so much work with a lot of these Romanian orphans that were brought here to the United States and these were kids who had perfectly healthy eyes and they had a perfectly healthy history but the only problem was in these orphanages there was not enough light and there was not enough pattern stimulation so you want to make certain that you have the appropriate level of lighting as well a third thing to think about is if your child has seizures it's very very important that we do everything we can to try to eliminate or to reduce the number of seizures These seizures tend to cause a lot of electrical activity and as a result many times a child might forget what he has previously learned We've seen it where children have learned to reach for the toy that they see. They have a seizure and they forget. Or a child might lose the ability to move the eyes. They forget how to move the eyes to one direction because of a seizure. So one of the things that I am looking at very, very closely now is studying a lot of this work that's being done by the Brain Enhancement Institute where they are basically looking at what's the effect of these different types of alpha beta and theta EEG waves and by using this particular type of technique we can measure what particular exercise or what particular color or what particular toy has the greatest effect on changing that EEG wave of the brain once we can identify which one is the best we could continue to do the stimulation and we're hoping that we'll have the greatest type of results where we're going to improve the rate of progress. So this is a real real exciting project that we're working on right now and we're hoping to find some very very valuable information. So overall neurological vision impairment again simply means that the main reason why a child or an adult isn't seen well it's because that there's some changes to the brain. For children, it's usually because of a lack of oxygen, but for others, it could be a head injury. A three-year-old might fall off of a couch, strike his head, there might not be any blood, but it could be enough to affect vision. We see a lot of boxers, we see a lot of athletes who lose their vision because of these kinds of contact sports. Now when children have these kinds of vision impairment problems, and when adults suffer from head injury that affects their vision causing neurological vision impairment there are many different types of doctors and programs throughout the country that do provide this kind of work a few of the organizations if you want to look up more one of the organization, and this is called Nora www.nora.org and that's the Nero optometric rehabilitation associates. So Nora is a group of doctors who just specialize in neurological vision impairment. We also know that there is the College of Optometrists in Vision Development and they are at www.covd.org. They also have a lot of information about the new developments for neurological vision impairment. And also, you could contact uh, Sue parker Strafassier and myself at Braille Institute, and uh, we could also help you with that. So, uh, thank you for listening. And at this time, we'll go ahead and unmute your phones by pressing star 6, and if anybody has any questions, we could go ahead and take questions now. Yeah, the question is... Is there a difference between cortical blindness and cortical vision impairment? And the answer to that is yes. In the way that we and many doctors will classify neurological vision impairment, we will break it down into three subcategories. In other words, neurological vision impairment, it's just a general term that tells us that there's something different about the vision part of the brain. Now there's three main subtypes one would be cortical blindness and in cortical blindness these children are totally blind number two cortical vision impairment just like the name suggests these kids are visually impaired they do have some vision now there might be many times that you read articles that are older or you might have even seen certain doctors and on their insurance form they might say cortical blindness well one of the reasons for that is that the insurance billing codes it does not break it down into three different categories in the olden days any kind of neurological vision impairment was called cortical blindness so in the past if you read some of the older articles or if you only go by the insurance forms it may say cortical blindness but today most of the doctors who work with children with head injuries or vision impairment that's due to neurological reasons they will break it down into three these three different categories okay the question is how does a child get diagnosed with cortical vision impairment as compared to cortical blindness again for doctors who do see children with neurological vision impairment we have different tests where we could determine whether a child has vision or not. For example, if a child has cortical blindness, we might use all sorts of different types of testing techniques, and in each one of these, the child's response will be zero. For example, we often see that children who have cortical blindness, if a child is lying down, we could actually bring our hands real close to their eyes, and they never blink if we look at their eyes many times your eyes might be having a nystagmoid movement meaning that the two eyes don't move together the eyes might always be rolling up into the eye socket other times we'll see that these kids don't have any peripheral vision now when you mention that what about a child who doesn't track it's very very common that a child with cortical vision impairment doesn't track and especially we had to see at what age what we do know is that because many children with cortical vision impairment don't have good central vision they don't track because when we track we're usually using our central vision to do that so the child with cortical vision impairment will very often see it using the peripheral vision and then when you move it to the opposite side they then turn their head slightly so we look very often for the head types of movement so the best way is to be seen by doctors who have seen children with neurological vision impairment and they can determine whether the child has cortical blindness, cortical vision impairment, or sometimes delayed visual maturation. Yeah, the question is, what is a PET scan? Well, the PET scan is a way that we can see on a computer screen what is the metabolic activity of the different regions of the brain so again a particular type of chemical is going to be used and when the brain is trying to use its vision for example we're gonna look onto the computer screen to see if this is something that is being illuminated it will glow okay now this is something that's usually done more often in research studies and things like that Doctors often do not have that in their typical offices. And again, it's not routinely performed because it's a very, very expensive test. With with young children and things like that, it's often more difficult to do because they do need to sit still and things. But the use of the PET scan was very important in helping the researchers and the doctors to understand what part of the brain is actually functional what part of the brain is actually working? And then we also had mentioned how the EEG study really seems the way to be that we could look at the function of that part of the brain. So would it be easier for you to go in to get a PET scan or would it be easier for you to go in to have an EEG? The EEG would probably be something that would be more readily available. The question is what about a student who had a stroke in utero does that cause neurological vision impairment and the answer to that is that it definitely can so a stroke in utero basically means that before the baby was born there was a lack of blood supply to different regions of the brain now this could be because there might have been a hemorrhage and the blood didn't get delivered to that part of the brain or it could be because there was a clot so anytime that there is a lack of blood supply to that part of the brain it is called a stroke now if it happened to be such that it stopped the flow of blood to the occipital lobe of the brain in the back then it's very likely that it has affected the vision so this child could have cortical vision impairment now if it was extremely severe where it affected different blood vessel systems then it would be something that can cause cortical blindness as well. Now the question is could a stroke that happens in uro can it affect the eyeball itself or does it only affect the brain? Uh, A stroke could affect any particular part of the body so if for whatever reason that the blood clot let's say that it was a blood clot that it affected the blood vessel that feeds blood to the eye something called the central retinal artery if there was a stroke to the central retinal artery that means the eye wouldn't get the blood so it would actually cause damage to the eyeball you could also have a situation where you might have a stroke to the blood vessel that's going to supply blood to the kidney for example so a stroke could <clears throat> excuse me a stroke could affect any, any particular part of the body. Okay, so I want to thank all of you for listening into this podcast this evening, and uh, we'll be here again next month on the second Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. Uh, we'll be talking about various types of retinal disorders. So I hope this information was helpful, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week. For Braille Institute and Ayers LA, this is Dr. Bill Takesha. This podcast is intended solely for the use of the blind and the brent impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited.